Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate. BrooklynSlate.com for more. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Episode 141 of The Morning After. I am your host today, Sari Kamen. My co-host, Jesse Kiefer, is in another land. I believe it is the land of California. We miss her always when she's not here. However, I do have a very special guest in the studio with me today to make me feel a little less sad about Jesse. His name, Jonathan Check. He is the chef de cuisine at Buttermilk Channel the neighborhood favorite American cuisine spot in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. Jonathan, welcome to The Morning After. Thank you very much. <laughs> so far, so good. Great to be here. It's great it's to great have to you. great to see you. Thank you. It's great to see you, too. We actually are basically next-door neighbors. <laughs> yes, we are. It's nice to see you in another part of Brooklyn today. <laughs> yes. uh, before we get to your whole story and all of your chefdom, I'd like to start today off with a little food news, if you don't mind. If I don't mind. Do you mind? I don't mind. Okay, no, good. Please. And in fact, you should even uh, contribute if, if you feel the spirit okay. moves you. Um, so first off, in Wales, a deadly erection-inducing spider was found living in bananas in a supermarket. Have you heard this? This is not food news. Are you kidding? This is, <laughs> banana is a food, last time I checked. <laughs> so a woman, a Welsh woman in Wales... <laughs> uh, bought some bananas at her, her local supermarket. She took them home. She was getting ready to, to dig into one of them, and she noticed a giant spider cocoon in, in one of the bananas. She was obviously really shaken up. She checked another banana, and there was another cocoon. And she'd read about, I guess there's a lot of press in the U.K. about these like particular um, kind of spiders. They're called Brazilian spiders, but they're actually referred to more colloquially as banana spiders because they're known for like being in the forest ground and getting into the bananas that are growing there. And then they just make their way into the supermarkets. And it's happened before quite a few times in the U.K. So she noticed it. She'd seen some like PSA about it. She threw it in a bag in the, and put it in the freezer because apparently that's how you're supposed to handle these. Um, the best part is that, <laughs> well, not the best, the best and the worst part about these particular spiders is that if you're stung or I guess like eat one, um, they can A, kill you, B, give you a four hour erection, <laughs> C, A, and B. <laughs> So this is really not funny. I shouldn't be laughing. Um, so so you could get a four-hour erection and also experience the painful deterioration of bodily functions at the same time. But luckily, wow. luckily, no one was injured in that incident. Of course, it was in a banana too. Oh, right? like you can't you can't make that up. You, I and I didn't. <laughs> 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 and it was, and I mean, apparently they're also like looking into using it, the venom, and like uh, for medical purposes in a way that wouldn't kill the user. But um, yeah, no, no updates on that. <laughs> we'll keep you okay. posted. <laughs> please, please do. Okay. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. Okay, uh, in Chicago, a shipment of avocado pulp was found to have about twenty one hundred pounds of marijuana stuffed inside of it. 
He's, you're shaking your head like, yep, sounds about right. Cool. Cool. <laughs> uh, I guess they, the shipment came into some sort of packaging, I don't know, facility, and it was 1,512 boxes. Uh, the people that worked there thought it was, I don't know, there was something kind of shady about it. They called the police. The police started in- investigating, and they found flat bricks of marijuana covered in avocado pulp in some of the packages. Some did not have it, and some did. They're really trying to trick them there. And uh, it was seized. It was apparently worth around $10 million <laughs> in marijuana and avocado <laughs> prices. And um, I think it's just uh, it's a big old waste of avocado. It's too bad. And weed. Well, that too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Bummer. I don't know where it was going. I think it was probably going to Mexico. So Chicago's... Why do you think that? Because um, that's what the article said. <laughs> Chicagoans can lament... Because they were avocados? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. Mexicans love avocados. <laughs> so do Chicagoans, and now they're sad that there's like a guacamole shortage or something. Oh, so there's an actual shortage of guacamole because... I don't know. Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> there might be. That's a lot of we, We're going to have a lot to talk about after the show yes. with all these news. We're going to sh- we're gonna have to have a show after the show. Yeah, follow up. Follow up. Okay, check us out on Twitter. Okay, and lastly, this is news apparently. A Chick-fil-A is moving into New York City. I saw that. Did you? Yes. I'm dying to know your thoughts. Um... As someone who works at a restaurant that is known for fried <laughs> yeah. chicken, do you? Is there going to be some competition? Did you guess you never. I'm not about worried it? about the competition so okay. much, and I uh, I have fond memories of eating a lot of Chick Fil A when I was in high school. I guess I didn't realize there wasn't a Chick Fil A in New York. Uh, yeah. And it's opening, me, of me course, in Herald Square, which us New Yorkers know is like the armpit of New York. I mean, there must be a need for it there. Is there a need? There, Someone there needs must, there Chick-fil-A? Must be. Those, I feel like those places don't open unless they really uh, do a lot of market research and they, well, they decide that, like that's the place that there needs gonna to be, be a Chick-fil-A. It's going to be a 5,000 square foot space, three levels. So someone that, that's, that seems a little bit uh, like excessive. Yeah. and it's, I, we, I guess I'm not surprised that there's maybe opening a Chick-fil-A, but like the size and scale of that particular store seems like it's a little excessive. Maybe that's why it's like actual news that's that must be the news and also you i don't know if you recall but there was a bit of controversy with chick-fil-a not too long ago oh yeah there was some gay and lesbian discrimination coming out of it and now they're like opening is is, is that part of why this is making news maybe yeah it must be huh uh i don't really have a lot more to say about it i think it's like weird timing i mean it feels like we're moving away from fast food culture in general like i know mcdonald's had probably their worst year ever Yes, I, I saw that too. So it does seem like a like strange timing for a like a mega fast food chain to be moving in while we're kind of moving in a different direction. They, they must know something we do. They, they must they must feel that there are the the fried chicken eating public is being underserved in that in that part of town because they, they I don't think they would do that unless you know they had they must have had some meetings. They, they must have really figured that was going to be a good idea. All right, well time will tell. I'll try it. I mean, I'll, I'll go whenever. You would. Where's Herald Square? Um, it's, do you know where your bathroom is? And then the toilet, (laughs) if you go into that and swim for a while, you'll end up there. I find it. Okay. Do I need to bring my passport? Yes. Okay. Yes. I'll try it next time I'm in Herald Square in the toilet. (laughs) Yeah. If you need to go to H&M, you might. Okay. I could have a Chick-fil-A lunch and go to H&M. That's right. 
stuff the by, things you do in Harold Square. Stop by Guy Fieri's. Isn't Guy Fieri's restaurant near? No, that's Times Square. That's Times Square. Okay, but that's yeah. in Manhattan too. That's the other worst place. Okay. <laughs> but you could make a whole day of it. I could. Yeah, Chick Fil A for lunch, Guy Fieri for dinner. That sounds great. Great. Yep. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more John Check. proud to count Brooklyn Slate as a business member of Heritage Radio Network. Brooklyn Slate Company is a collaborative effort from Brooklyn graphic designer Sean Tice and Parsons graduate student Christy Hedeka. After visiting Christy's family slate quarry in upstate New York in the spring of 2009, the two grabbed a few pieces for use as all-purpose boards back home in Brooklyn and began gifting pieces to friends. The response was so overwhelmingly positive that the two struck out to produce a line of slate products. We encourage you to visit brooklynslate.com to learn more. You can also get your own Brooklyn Slate care package by becoming a superfan member of Heritage Radio Network. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate for more. Hola, I'm Daisy Martinez, and you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. You're listening to The Morning After on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. I am in the studio today at Roberta's Pizza per Uge with my guest, Jonathan Check, chef de cuisine of Buttermilk Channel. John, chef, check. Hello. Chef John Check. Hello. What order should I say that is in? It, is it John Check, chef? You're calling me Jonathan first, and now you're calling me John, and now you're calling me chef. So All of those three combined is you. My mother <laughs> calls me Jonathan still. I call you Jonathan sometimes. And you, I yes. just did. Oh, that's it? Just the two of you. Just you and my mother. Jonathan's lovely wife, Sarah, is in studio. What do you call him? John. Hubby. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Chef John. Check. Sir. <laughs> um, well, I'm really glad you're here. I, I personally have had a long relationship with Buttermilk Channel, as you know. Yeah, I, I know that. I live next door to it. You live up, don't you live upstairs? No, that's just a rumor. I don't okay. live in Buttermilk Channel. <laughs> I live next door and but, you know, but next door and upstairs up up a set of stairs well don't give it away to everyone <laughs> I need some privacy okay, in my life sorry. <laughs> before the paparazzi rolls in uh, yeah so I, I've had the pleasure of living next to Buttermilk Channel for a long time since its inception I believe and you know it was just a hit like from the second it opened um, Doug Crowell the, the owner just made it the kind of place that 
people wanted to, to hang out. And, you know, even if it's in Brooklyn, it was kind of always a destination restaurant, sort of, but was, all, you know, has always had the same kind of neighborhood locals and regulars, myself included, um, since day one. And there's just, it's just uh, always busy. There's never an issue. And the food's always good. Well, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that was before you got there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so it's still good. And you took over as chef. When was that? Uh, it was about a year and a half ago. I, okay. I took over as the chef de cuisine. So you're, you're the second chef de cuisine. Uh, yes. Well, there actually, there, uh, there was no chef de cuisine before me. Ah. Uh, they, they created my position when Doug and, uh, my executive chef, Ryan Angulo, they, um, partnered up to open a new restaurant called French Louis, which is on Atlantic Avenue, which, which is really different from Buttermilk Channel. Uh, dif- different in some ways, but, uh, but, but similar also. Well, it's not that like American classic. It's not, no, it's food. French. Right. It's, it's a French restaurant. Yeah. But a uh, similar kind of approach as far as a, you know, a neighborhood destination and yeah. a similar approach to service and um, a similar vibe in a lot of ways. But they, uh, when they opened that restaurant, you know, there, there became a need, I guess, for someone who would run the kitchen at Buttermilk Channel and continue to work with Ryan while he focused his efforts on, on getting that place off the ground. So that was when the, I, I guess... They began looking for a chef de cuisine, and and that became me. So let's talk a little bit about your background, and how it, how and why it made sense for you to take over at Buttermilk Channel. So where did you start? Because you're you're a, a young chef with many notches <laughs> in your belt. Yes. Uh, I, it's funny because uh, that's thank you. <laughs> I, I, I was I don't think I'm an old chef, but there are there are many chefs younger than me now that I hear about and read about. So. It's good to be considered still in that category, I guess. I mean, I'm over 30, so. <laughs> well, you're still quite young, I think. Uh, my background. Compared to Danielle Boulud. <laughs> right. Well, he's he's young in spirit, yes, they say. But uh, my, my background, let's see. Um, I, I came to cooking uh, after, after college, kind of accidentally fell into it. Um, worked in some restaurants uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I went to college briefly and then moved to New York to go back to school for cooking and then started working in, in restaurants here. Uh, had a chance to work in some really amazing kitchens with some great chefs in Manhattan. Um, uh, my first job in Manhattan was at Savoy, which is, uh, you know, which was an institution for many, many years. Peter Hoffman, the chef there, uh, closed, of course, reopened his back 40 West, but, uh, it was a really amazing place to start because of the, um, just his approach to cooking very seasonal, true farm to table. Like one of the first people to really do that in, um, in the city to really buy from local farmers and to buy from local purveyors and to, and to present the food in a, a very straightforward, simple way that, that spoke to the seasons. I think so many people who've worked for Peter Hoffman have been really, really successful. It's true. Yeah, like there's a, a really amazing... That, you know, our executive uh, director of Heritage Radio, Erin Fairbanks, got her start there as well. It's right, and I know Erin, but I, I, I didn't meet her there. I met her at, at Gramercy Tavern, mm-hmm. actually, which was oh, the yeah. next stop on my journey. Um, but um, so start coming in to a restaurant in New York and, and working at Savoy was, was great because, uh, I sort of just thought that's how that all restaurants were 
you know, when, when I got here, that the approach was always going to be, you know, a small menu and very seasonal and that it would change a very dynamic menu working with the seasons and, um, you know, paying a lot of attention to the ingredients that were going into the dishes. And when was that? This was in 2008. Yeah, because it does seem like, I mean, we just take for granted now there's so many of those type of restaurants, many of which you've worked in that, you know, um, rely on what's in season and what's what's nearby. But it just wasn't always that case. And I have to say that Peter Hoffman was really quite a pioneer in, in New York City. Well, I don't think it, it wasn't always the case here in, in the United States. Sure. But in, in Europe, um, that tradition really goes hand in hand with the tradition of being a cook, being a chef, I feel like. Have you ever worked overseas? No. I, I, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> um, no, I completely agree with you. But it is interesting how, you know, with like Peter Hoffman actually was a huge, I think, just influence on like the general kind of like culture and palate, um, at least in, in New York City. Yeah, it, it was great working uh, in that restaurant. And I worked for uh, Ryan Tate was the uh, chef de cuisine when I was there. And he was a real um, he was a real chef's chef as far as. Uh, he really got his hands dirty. He, w- he would work the line. He would work all the stations, and he would be involved in every aspect of the food because it was such a small restaurant, so he could be. So it was a really uh, great thing to see, um, you know, to work alongside a chef who worked like that because you don't always have the chance um, as a chef to, to, to get that involved in every aspect of the food, if you, you know, if you're working in a bigger restaurant or perhaps a different kind of concept. So... Once again, when I when I started there, that kind of set a precedent for me of, of, you know, what I really loved about working in a professional kitchen. And then I moved on to Gramercy Tavern, where I was for um, not quite two years, about a year and a half. And that was um, just a, a mind-blowing experience. All the same things at Savoy, but more of a, a fine dining um, atmosphere, uh, an incredible staff of cooks, um, most of whom now are running their own kitchens. I, mean, I won't even go through the list because it's just like pretty much everybody that I worked alongside when I was there is now a chef, executive chef, chef de cuisine, high sous chef level thing. I mean, it was a real like brain trust of people working there. Um, and I just learned so I wasn't a very good cook when I was there by any means, but I just learned so much by, by watching everybody around me who was good and uh, just trying to keep my head above water and I had the opportunity to work, um, you know, six stations, five or six stations while I was there. Um, and then... Is that unusual? Well, uh, to work that many? Yeah. Well, no, because there's, so there's so many things to do there. It's <laughs> like, I mean, there's, uh, there's guys that, that I worked with back then who are still there now, and they're still <laughs> doing more. Uh, th- that kitchen is so big, and they, they do so many interesting things there. There's an amazing charcuterie program. And then there's obviously the, um, the the front restaurant where the tavern is is a little more casual and a little more walk in. And then you have the the back room, which is the you know the tasting menu and the a la carte, which comes out of the main kitchen where there's like you know twenty cooks working. Um, there's a a pretty substantial team of sous chefs. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to do. You could you could spend a lifetime working there probably and, and still never get bored and never do the same thing. Um, I was at a point. I guess in my career where I wanted to continue to see a couple more things. So I moved on after about a year and a half there and went to work for Andrew Carmelini at Locanda Verde, which is where I met you. Yes. 
That is where we met. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we've had a couple of your, your peers on the show at this point. That's right. There's a lot of great cooks have come out of uh, that restaurant and all of his restaurants. And are still in that company, and you're one of the... I'm one of the defectors. The, ex- the exception that, yes. that flew the coop. I did fly the coop. Fly the coop I came back coop. briefly, but I flew the coop twice, actually. And um, But I had a really... Uh, I had a great experience working there, and that was where I really felt like I, I began to come into my own as a cook and really started to have fun... Um, with you know, with with being a cook, and and with working with ingredients, and with you know being a part of a kitchen, and kind of opened up my eyes a little bit to, um, you know, the big picture. You know, when you start cooking, it's it's scary because you know everybody sucks when they start cooking. I think professionally, because it's you know you have two left feet, and it's it's uh it's really difficult to be a line cook for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, the, it's hot in a kitchen. There's a lot of weird, angry people. Um, there's a lot of pressure and, uh, you know, you get to a point where it just all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you, and you get it, you know what I mean? And, and then that's when you really start to soar you start to have fun. And then you just, uh, advance. And I feel like that's really happened when I was at Locanda Verde. I, I feel like that was where things started to click for me. Hmm. Um, so then I went to, I came to Brooklyn and I went to work at Vinegar Hill House where I was a sous chef for almost two years. Which is just such a different experience. That was a very, yeah, that was a big drop as far as size Uh and concept. And, um, you know, basically everything about it was different, but it was, uh, it was a chance to do some food that was a little more, um, artisanal for me and to work with a much smaller staff. And to kind of you know focus a little bit more on, on developing um, you know my approach to food and my approach yeah to I was cooking. just going to ask you know that was your first time kind of running the kitchen how did you feel was it your first time where you felt like you really sort of got to play with like what your voice is as far as a chef uh, well Vinegar Hill House when I was there uh, Brian Leth was the executive chef and uh, it was such a small restaurant that it was basically. As far as chefs went, it was me and him. He was the chef and I was the sous chef. And uh, there was not a whole lot of, because of the size of the kitchen and the staff, there really wasn't a whole lot of, like, managing to really do. It was really just cooking. Like, we'd come in and we'd cook, you know? We'd come in at 10, 11, 12 o'clock or whatever, and we would cook. We'd write the menu. Um, we'd reprint the menu every day, literally, um, changing small things sometimes, other times changing larger things. Um and he really was very, very open to allowing me to come up with, to come up with dishes and to work with him on his ideas and, and to, to change things and to adapt things and one day to do it this way and another day to do it that way. So um, that was absolutely the place where I started to, um, you know, maybe, I guess, develop a voice if you wanted to call it or just an approach or, or just, you just get the hang of, you know, of coming up with dishes and how do you get a how do you turn an idea into something that you can actually like send out to customers um and that was that was definitely where that happened he was a really uh great influence on me uh a very a very interesting uh fearless approach to food like we did a lot of kind of weird interesting things there nothing was off limits like any part of the world or country or cooking technique was something that we were very happily attempt in, in that restaurant um and it was it was a lot of fun i mean it, it changed all the time and it was very dynamic and 
the time I spent there is, you know, it's just a great, great memories. Yeah. So let's go to where you are right now. La Conda Verde. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm looking <laughs> no. at Sarah and she's totally doing something weird. <laughs> I'm at Roberta's right now. I'm at, we're at Roberta's. Drinking a beer. So when you started working at Buttermilk Channel, there had been a menu um, that really hadn't changed that much in a couple, well, I guess since it had, had opened. And then you, you took over the kitchen and what was it like to, to come into a place that was so well established at that point and, you know, had so many like great hits on the menu that people wanted to show up and, you know, they, they could rely on the chicken and waffles and they could rely on the burger and fries. So obviously those things things, are still on the menu. Of course. No, I mean, obviously there's things that are, you know, you don't touch them. Like if it's not broken, you don't fix it. But it was an opportunity for you to be like, I'm chef de cuisine. Like what, what do we want to do? How malleable is the menu here? Uh, well, when I started, uh, I have to say that Doug, uh, who owns the restaurant, and Ryan, who uh, my executive chef, they were incredibly, they left it really open for me. They basically were like, change whatever you want, but just don't change the chicken and don't change the meatloaf. There you go. <laughs> and the lamb salad. And the burger. And the burger, yeah. But I think it also, in some ways, it comes back to the concept of the restaurant, which is, we call it an American bistro, mm-hmm. which is, um, if you, what does that mean? I mean, if you think about a bistro... Uh, well, like if you go to Paris or something and, you know, every, every neighborhood or corner has a bistro on it. Right. Yeah. And they all serve uh, to some degree uh, similar versions of, of the same thing. Right. They all have the same. They thing. all have steak frites yep. and they all have mussels yep. and they all have a omelet and a croque monsieur. And a, right. So the, the, the idea behind the, the restaurant always has been that it's uh, an American bistro. So that there's always going to be things on the menu that people can count on. Mm hmm. Um, to come in and and eat in a in a casual atmosphere at a at a modest price point, um, so I wasn't going to come. It was never my intention to come in and, and turn it into a tasting menu only. Uh, you know, one seating a night. That would have I don't even know what the neighborhood would have done. They, I mean, they would have probably uh, tarred out. and feathered me. Yeah. But but that was never the idea. You know, the the idea was always to uh, to to keep all those things the same and and to really continue to play to the the hits as far as like what you just said like those dishes that people just love and come back for and that are that are, that are classic dishes in the restaurant you know um but that that being said you know they really still it, it's a, still a chef driven restaurant so the idea is still for for me and the the cooks and the the chef team to uh, to keep it fresh and to keep it seasonal and to change, you know, the garnishes on stuff. Um, like, you know, the, the duck meatloaf, for example, while the duck meatloaf may never disappear from the menu, you know, there during the summer, we will have a, or, or soon, perhaps, there, there may be a ramp puree on yes, the duck meatloaf. Ramp. We'll, celery root puree will go away and, and a ramp potato puree may appear. And then in the late summer, you know, there will be a corn something or other. I don't want to get too ahead of myself because don't I need to focus crazy. on. I don't want to go crazy, but <laughs> but uh, but the idea is to keep those things uh, consistent and delicious and and there for people, but also uh, to run it uh, to make it a chef driven place and to use our creativity and to use our uh, spirit to keep it fresh. I guess. So when you started, what what were areas that you felt like? could be improved or where did you feel like you were able to sort of showcase yourself in a way, you know, that would affect the menu? Uh, 
th- there was very little that needed to be improved, to be honest with you. Um, the, the, the biggest challenge for me was filling uh, Ryan's shoes. Oh. Because um, you know Ryan. Yes, and from, from the Stanton Social. Right, because you worked with him there, and yes. you, live in, you live in Buttermilk Channel. I do. So you know him. In the bathroom. Yes. But, uh, it smells, they have the best candles. Um, R- Ryan, in addition to being a great chef, is a, a really um, great guy, and he's such a big part of that place for so long. And uh, I guess I was really worried that I was going to be like the ugly stepfather in some ways, you know? Um, all of a sudden, Ryan's not there, and like here I am. Uh, I, I guess I was more, more mean than ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, the mean, handsome stepfather. No, I was I was more concerned about the uh, the kind of um, g- getting the staff getting the staff behind me, and and you know having them realize that I, I was there for good, and not to completely like change or ruin anything that had come before me. Yeah. Um, but as far as you know, fixing things that were broken, there was uh, barely anything, nothing I'd say broken. I mean, I, I came in, you know, with some experience having worked in some fine dining restaurants and also having worked in some other smaller Brooklyn restaurants. So maybe I had a, a, a pretty balanced perspective about how to uh, implement, you know, some systems that I had seen uh, in those places and, yeah. uh, and perhaps, you, you know, in, in a like breathing a breath of fresh air into how certain things were organized. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mean to to frame that in like a pejorative way. I meant more like, how did you see yourself sort of like embedding your style into the menu that was already so solid? It was, it was easy because it was the food that I, you know, always the food, first of all, food that I love to eat um, and food that I've been cooking for a long time and ingredients that I was very familiar with. And it was very easy. Um, And, was that a place that you'd eaten at before you got hired? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. A bunch of times. Yeah, I took my parents there, actually, once. Which, when I interviewed with Doug, it was one of the first things I said, and that made a huge impression on him. He was, he was like, you know, it's a, we'd like to be the place that you take your parents to. I've totally taken my parents yeah. there, too. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so no, it, it, was, uh, it, it was very easy. It felt very natural. Um, when, I, when I sat down with the guys when I first started, I looked at the menu, and I told them that I, I felt 100%, 110% confident making everything on that menu uh, just probably, you know, just as good as it had been made for the, for the last five years. And that, um, you know, anything that we came up with moving forward would very, very easily slide into those slots. Yeah. So it, it was, it was, that was perhaps the easiest part for me. So Buttermilk Channel is, it's in Carroll Gardens, you know, which is, um, it's a great neighborhood, but it's on, you know, the, the south end of Carroll Gardens that is only kind of now just really starting to percolate. There wasn't much there when Buttermilk Channel opened itself. No. And yet, you know, that place has been banging since the doors opened. And even when there was nothing else around and like one block away was kind of sketchy, like the BQE was there, there was no problem filling seats. And, you know, it's, it's a great restaurant and that speaks for itself, but sometimes that's not always enough. You know, being in a place that doesn't have, like, a super famous chef or, you know, just a little bit off the beaten path. Not that it really is so much anymore, but for so long. I mean, what is the secret to the success? Because it's just not all restaurants, you know, can stay that consistently busy for that long without, like, a lot of, um, you know, like, 
tricks up their sleeve or bows and other little things to make it flashy. And Buttermilk Channel has just been so consistent as just like a really great neighborhood restaurant. Yeah, it's funny when I when I was began the process for taking the job, I did a lot of research. Um, you know, read a lot of reviews and spoke to a lot of people just because I wanted to get a sense of like what people thought about Buttermilk Channel. And it's like, uh, and everyone knows it. Every, not only is everybody, everyone does know it, but so few people have like bad things to say about it. Oh, it's yeah. like nobody talks shit about Buttermilk Channel. Like, <laughs> which is in this town, I think is a huge um, accomplishment. It's true. <clears throat> because there's, you know, everybody loves to. Um, especially now, it, it, it's so easy to. to uh, everyone's a critic. Everyone's a critic. I mean, it, it, with and everyone's the, empowered to be that, right? Because of the internet and the blogs and the Twitter and all that stuff. But uh, it, I, it was very curious to see that so many people really did like have a place in their heart for Buttermilk Channel mm-hmm. and, and liked it. Um, but what what is the secret? I mean, I don't know if I'm really in a place to talk about the secret. I Like I said, I, I wasn't the one who opened it. I didn't... <laughs> I wasn't the pioneer down on that corner, but I think that, you know, we try to stay really true to um, the, the concept as far as the food goes, as I said before, that idea of like an American bistro. And uh, we, we try to be the place that people can come into for a, a varying occasions all the time, you know, uh, and we are blessed with, uh, an incredible, um, group of regulars, neighborhood people that, that support us, you know, early in the week. And then also later in the week, uh, which is huge. I mean, regulars are a huge part of your business and treating your regulars like gold and keeping the place nice for them is really important. Uh, and cooking for your, uh, cooking for your neighborhood, is, is, you know, basically what you need to do in our situation. Yeah, if I could just cavell for a second. Like you, for example. Like you, <laughs> you, you come in and, you know, you're, you're part of the neighborhood. And we like to see you when you come in. Well, not only am I part of the neighborhood, that's whatever. But when I go in there, that is the only time I feel like true celebrity status. <laughs> we, Every single yeah. person there is like, hey! And, you know, if Doug's around, he'll come over and hug me. And the bartenders will be like, <gasps> like, as if I don't come in all the freaking time. Right. Well, that's <laughs> I mean, that's really important. I think that that resonates with people because there's like no better feeling than being. Treated. There is no better feeling. L- like when you walk into a restaurant and someone treats you like you're a fucking rock star. Yeah. That's like that is the best feeling. That does in the not world. get old. No, I mean, that, that lasts. That feeling lasts for a long time. And I'm telling you, I mean, I love the restaurant. That's like a no brainer. But that feeling is also why I go right. at this point because there's nowhere else. I don't have that with any other restaurant. And, and we, we love to give people that feeling. And, uh, and also, it doesn't feel in any way put on. It feels 100% it's not. No, it's, genuine. It's genuine. No, it, yeah. it's totally genuine. And like, uh, that's, a, you know, Jennifer Nelson, our general manager, and Doug, uh, that, you know, th- these are things that we actually really talk about a lot. Uh, we, we go through, you know, the nightly manager notes. I mean, we talk about, you know, Sari came in and we we gave her a big hug and she loved this. I mean, we, we, we talk about like our, our regulars and our guests because like we we want them. We're there for them. You yeah. Know? Like we're, we're not like like you said, we're not the kind of restaurant that's on the front page of, uh, you know, Eater or Grub Street or the New York Times all the time. We, we are sometimes, but uh, we, we try to be that, that place where, you know, 
that's there for the neighborhood and that's there for the regulars. That's yeah. like our most important thing. But then, I mean, other people do come. I mean, it's it, it's not not a destination restaurant. People do come, yes, and and when and I think that when they come, they're uh, they're they want to come back and they're impressed and they think it's a really cool place. Um, but and and that's also that's an incredibly important part of the business as well. But the secret, I think, is is striking that maybe striking that balance and like i said i don't i don't claim to have all the answers but yeah uh, you know cooking for the for the neighborhood and feeding the people of the neighborhood is a really important thing for us so i completely agree and i just think that doug has done an amazing job of striking that balance where it's like it's it's casual but it's high end like it's this and it's that you know it's it's a bistro it's really refined food, but it's not pretentious. It's it's so many things for so many different people. And, I mean, for me, from my perspective, having been there now for so many years as a regular, I mean, that is obviously the convenience is why I go a lot. But it's really that. Because <laughs> you, you know? live in the bathroom. Because I live in the bathroom, so I don't get out a lot. But, I mean, that is something I tell my friends. You know, like when I, I'm like, I want to bring you to Buttermilk Channel because I love having a place to go where I, where I get treated so well. And I don't think, you know... I'm the only person who's treated like that. I think everyone's treated like that. And it makes me proud, you know, to be able to go and like be friends with people who are just so kind and generous. And I just think that, you know, it's really special the way you guys treat all of your guests. Well, that's great. And I I think another draw to it is, uh, you know, we, our menu is huge and, uh, (laughs) and varied. It's not huge. Well, it's, it's, it's a, it's a large, no, it is. It's a big menu. It's a bistro menu. There's a lot of stuff on it, but, uh, you know, it's the kind of place that, you know, early in the week, we may have people coming in on a Monday or a Tuesday to just have a couple beers and get some oysters and have a, have a fried chicken, you know, but later in the week we have, uh, anniversaries and birthdays and uh, engagements even, and um, you know special occasions. You know l- later in the week, and you can co- you can totally come in and have, you know, drink a really beautiful bottle of wine and have oysters and have foie gras and have three courses and and dessert drinks. I mean, you could have like a full on lavish dining experience there if that's what you want, or you can also just come in and get the veggie burger, get the veggie burger, <laughs> and, and and leave. You know yeah. what I mean? And and not and always feel like you're welcome no matter what you're doing. Yeah, there. and I've done both, and both. I mean, they're just equally and, enjoyable. And uh, we, we we very very uh, we, we really try to hold on to the uh, the ability to do both of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's tough. And you guys really really pull it off. Well, thank but you. But speaking of food, um, we're we're in the process right now of changing seasons. So what does that mean for the menu? What are we? Just, it means you I have give a lot us, of work to do. You'll need, <laughs> it means you probably shouldn't be here. You should be working. Yes. But you know, I, I'm just curious about ideas, concepts that you're playing with. Well, the uh, no, nothing's really growing right now <laughs> this week. <laughs> but uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks, the ramp thing is going to happen, and everyone's going to get really excited about mm-hmm. ramps. I'm already really excited. Yeah. So there'll be some. We'll try to do some stuff with ramps. And, um, ramps make people go wild. I mean, myself included. Yeah, the ramp thing is... Uh, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing. Wow. People really... They really freak out about ramps. I love ramps. So, I think it's because it's like so brief. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a treasure of spring. It's very brief. It All comes the spring vegetables, really. It, just, it feels like... It, yeah, it, it, it's actually a, it's a fun and challenging time to, to cook the stuff because... To cook everything. They're because here it, and then they're not. Right, exactly. Um, but there will be... 
there will be some menu changes soon. And then the one thing that we do at Buttermilk now, which is really cool, is that we do a weekly market menu. That is really cool. Yes. So that's really a place where we can... And did that come from your brain? Yes, that was that was from my brain. <laughs> um, that, that, that's a chance for us to... Uh, basically, we write a menu for the week, and it can have as many as five or six things on it or as few as two or three things on it, depending on what's happening. And that's that, that's where we really try to focus on the, the super seasonal stuff and the... Uh, um, you're taking a picture of me right now. <laughs> we, we focus on the super seasonal stuff on the market menu and the super seasonal, uh, the, the, the products and the fish and the meat and the things that are, you know, really interesting. Uh, and then with the menu, you know, keeping with our idea, we, it will change some of the garnishes, but like, well, the fried chicken will be, will stay and the meatloaf will stay and the lamb salad will stay. And then the, I, I'm excited to switch up the vegetarian menu as we move into spring because once all the spring vegetables start happening, there's a lot of room to play with uh, as far as as far as creating dishes around. I don't those know items. that a lot of people know you guys have a vegetarian menu. We have a vegetarian menu. We have a full vegetarian menu, and it's great. You need to ask for it when you sit. Yeah, it's a secret. Yeah, well, it is a secret. It's not a secret anymore. Okay. <laughs> it's but, like knowing what to get at the Chinese restaurant. Right. It's like menu. when you go to In and Out Burger and you order the uh, what oh, is like, that thing with the lettuce wrap? There's like a secret word. Yeah, I've, I've, I think it's beast. Is that it's animal style? Oh yeah, animal style. <laughs> if you order it animal style, you get like a ten bucks or something. You get ten bucks. I don't know. You get something really cool with your <laughs> you burger. You get a prize. <laughs> you get a prize with your burger. Animal style. You heard it here. Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, well, that is very exciting. Especially for me, because I live next door. I mean, in the bathroom. Yes. I'm going to eat all those vegetables. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back with the morning after quiz. Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Just for me, girl. Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day. Oh, won't you save it, baby, won't you save it? Oh, won't you save it all for me? Oh, won't you save all your cherry jam? Oh, won't you save all your cherry jam? Oh, won't you save all your cherry jam? Just for me, girl. Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day. Oh, won't you save it, baby? Won't you save it? Oh, won't you save it all for me? Hey, what's up? This is John Norris, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. And we're back. You're listening to The Morning After on Heritage Radio Network. I've been in studio today with my guest, John slash Jonathan slash Chef Check of Buttermilk <laughs> Channel in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. We've just had a really wonderful talk about the restaurant, but now it is time for The Morning After Quiz. Okay, John, 
You know all about your restaurant, Buttermilk Channel. But what do you know about the body of water that separates southern (laughs) England from northern France? The English Channel. The English Channel. It's time for the TMA quiz. You ready? Yes. And you know what, Sarah? I think that you you can participate in this one. Sarah's John's lovely wife. Okay. In French, the English Channel is called La Manche. What does this translate to? Is it A, the slip, B, the sleeve, or C, the slot? What, what is the word again? La Manche? <laughs> La Manche. I don't know French. That's really unfortunate Sarah right now. took you took French. I took French. I'm not really going to be able to help, though. What are the options What are the choices again? again? Okay, I'll read again. In French, the English channel is called La Manche. What does this translate to? Is it the slip? The sleeve or the slot? I'm going to say the slot just because I hope that's what it translates to. It does not. Okay. I'm going to say the sleeve. Okay. Well, that's true. (laughs) But now I I think I'm not going to give it to you. (laughs) You have to have. Half of us got it. You have to agree on the answer. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, But that's okay. You have two more opportunities to bring it back. Okay. Okay, this is, there's three questions, by the way. What happens if I... W- w- what is the payoff here, if, if any? Just the satisfaction? Just international fame. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, number two, the first crossing of the English Channel by air was via what form of flying contraption? Was it A, a balloon? B, Zeppelin? Just Zeppelin. <laughs> My co-host Jesse Keeper wrote this. It's just Zeppelin. <laughs> no Zeppelin specified. Could be lead. C, hang glider. So what, what first, when the English Channel was first crossed by air, what was used? A balloon, zeppelin, or hang glider? Um, can, when, when did this happen? What year? Oh, that's not part of the question. <laughs> you can't ask that question. It was a long time ago. Let's just say that. It was a long time ago? It was a long how, time ago. How long? Ago. Long ass. Um... Notice that speedboat was not an option. Okay, so. (laughs) Where do you find these questions? Where is your co-host right now? She's listening, I'm Um, sure. I'm going to say Zeppelin. Okay. And does she get an answer too, or she has to agree with me? How does that She can do whatever she wants. She's an independent woman. (laughs) (laughs) The answer was A, balloon. God damn it. (laughs) All right, your last question to put you out of your misery (laughs) once and for all. The oldest person to swim the channel was a 73-year-old from South Africa. Which part did he say was the most challenging part of his journey? Was it A, the frigid temperatures, B, the swift currents, or C, the sea monsters lurking below. Sea monsters. <laughs> of course it was the sea monsters. <laughs> that does sound frightening, but apparently the frigid temperatures were more challenging than, than the, the sea, sea monsters. monsters. So yes. Practical. Yes. This guy was fearless. So uh, I went 0 for 3. You did, but you know, you're still a chef. <laughs> That's right. And you still have your job. And you've got pizza, so everything's looking pretty good. Things are looking You're good. You're almost for me. out of beer, but we can fix that. Okay, that'd be great. Okay. You can refill me. Uh, yeah, I'll get right on that. <laughs> Jonathan, tell us how to find Buttermilk Channel. Uh, Buttermilk Channel is on Court Street, the corner of Court and Huntington in beautiful Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. And on the interweb? Uh, buttermilkchannelnyc.com. 
And how about you? Do you have a social media following? <laughs> if we want to tweet right at you. You can tweet at me. It's uh J Check Chef. Is that what it is? Yeah. It's J Check Chef. C-H-E-C-K. Really, I don't know how to use it that well. I'm really amazed on it. Everyone is. <laughs> it's like, it, it's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing, but you know, you've got some pretty pictures up there. Thank you. Of, yeah. of delicious-looking foods. Thank you very much. Yeah, that, I'm still figuring out how to make more people see them, but if, uh, you know, if, uh, it's followers. Coming on it's, here it's, was the first step. They're called followers, right? Yeah. So I need to get some more followers. Not in like a cultish way. No. But, Follow uh, out to your followers. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just I have that, and um, we have a buttermilk channel has a beautiful Instagram feed. What is it? Um, I think it's. <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay, okay. But uh, I know they're on Twitter, buttermilk, buttermilk Brooklyn, buttermilk Brooklyn. Yeah, B K L Y N. So, right. So there's a link to that. There's a link to the Twitter feed, or the link to the Instagram feed through the Twitter. Stay tuned for the show after the show where we reveal all the secrets yes. of today's show. But uh, that has links to all the cool stuff that we're doing and we have uh, in the spring we do a lot of um, beer, wine, cheese, ingredient driven uh, special event menu type things. All so those things. will be coming up too and all the information for those things will be you know, available via the social media feed on the website. Cool. And you can check us out. Uh, oh, I just found your Instagram. It's buttermilk Brooklyn, B-K-L-Y-N, the same as Twitter. Great. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. You guys need some more posts. You only have one. <laughs> wow. I'll get right on that. Yeah, you get on that. So you can follow us uh, the morning after. We're at T-M-A on H-R-N on Twitter. And we are the morning after on Heritage Radio on Instagram. And we'll be sure to uh, to cross promote. Great. Yeah. And we're on Facebook. All right. I'm not. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out this lovely Sunday afternoon, Chef Jonathan Check, and all of you out there. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.